This is the Darcy Drill Podcast, episode 34. Today, my guest is Aaron Gunn, producer and director of the hit online series, Politics Explained. Today, we're going to be talking about his episode, Vancouver is Dying. Aaron Gunn, welcome to the Darcy Drill Podcast. How are things? Things are good. Things are good. Uh, thank you for having me today. Looking forward to our uh, to our chat. Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks a lot for making it work. I've actually had a few of my listeners reach out to me and say you should try and get Aaron Gunn on because they really enjoyed your documentary uh, on Vancouver's dying. So, which we'll get into. But um, first, I'll let you introduce yourself to the listeners so I don't get anything wrong. Well, uh, I'm currently sitting here in the the uh, the, the bastion of conservatism of, of Victoria, British Columbia, as everybody knows. Uh, this is where I'm born and raised. And uh, I started working in the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which many of your listeners have probably heard of before. It's got a trans across Canada group fighting for lower taxes, less waste, accountable government. And I left that and started on, almost on the side these short videos that really took off on Facebook, particularly built up a really large social following uh, and still do some of the short videos, but have since branched out into what I guess you might describe as kind of traditional documentary filmmaking and uh, making uh, films or episodes as part of a part of my series called Politics Explained. And uh, that includes episodes like Vancouver's Dying that you mentioned. And uh, I think we've done 17 episodes now, so uh, quite a few. 19 episodes actually and uh so i'm always out there trying to you know provide a provide a voice and share facts and, and opinions especially on the issues that the media are, aren't talking about or choosing to ignore so uh definitely part of that alternate media space information space and uh, vancouver is dying which you mentioned was was definitely kind of the biggest of uh of the different uh things that i've produced it really took off yeah yeah right on i think i first became aware of you when you were still involved with the canadian taxpayers federation franco terzano is a good friend of the darcy drill podcast he's been on here a number of times so the one other the one other thing from years back i the where you were really on the radar was when they tore down the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Victoria, you almost became a bit of an authority on on the subject from, I guess you would call it a, a conservative perspective. Um, can you talk about what went on there? Yes, that was, was one of my first videos that really took off and we organized a rally uh, in opposition to them tearing it down. That was back in 2018. And... Uh, since that time, there's this has happened repeatedly, and not just McDonald, but other historical statues of, of of Canadian history. But when they tore down the McDonald statue in 2018, it was uh, Victoria was very much the ground zero for this kind of thing. It hadn't happened before. Now, obviously, we can chat about where it came from. It was simply copy and pasted from far left activists in the United States tearing down Confederate statues, and because the media and political activists in this country are so lazy. They just copy and paste things that from the United States, including environmental activism, without 
any regard whatsoever for the individual set of circumstances. So obviously, Canadian history is much different than American history. Uh, John A. Macdonald uh, was a much different man than than any figure from. I mean, everyone's their own man, but uh, him specifically, it was so uh, being a, a lover of of history and Canadian history in particular, which puts me in a minority. Uh, you know, John A. Macdonald was such an incredible individual who accomplished so much, who was seen as quite forward thinking and uh, socially progressive for his time. We might even say, although that obviously has a different connotation today. And uh, he he was I mean, without him, the country wouldn't even exist. And the amount of lies that were being spewed about him um, and the amount of lies that were being spewed about the origins of this country, clearly with ulterior motives of of trying to tear this country down, um, really motivated me to try to do something to to stop that and become an expert on all things McDonald. I'm sitting here right now, sir. I've got a couple of my McDonald biographies uh, behind me and beside me. And uh, the more you learn about this individual and the more you learn about that period of Canadian history, the more outrageous the actions of these, these I wouldn't even call them activists, I mean, vandals or whatever you want, this mob uh, who really doesn't represent the majority of, of Canadian opinion at all. Um, and yet we let them get away with impunity to 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 denigrate and and uh tear down our past and it's something that that, that's always frustrated me and inspired me to fight back and um like i said without mcdonald this country wouldn't even exist another thing i just i i have to point i point out every single time every single accusation if they were really concerned about residential schools or things like this i mean these are not things that were somehow unique to mcdonald or mcdonald and yet it's always the focus on him uh, it's never the focus on Laurier. It's never the focus on Mackenzie King. It's never the focus on Pierre Trudeau. It's always the focus on Johnny McDonald. And the one thing that he has that's different than all those other prime ministers is he founded the country. And once you understand that, then you understand why the activists are going after him and what their end goals are, which is to 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 deconstruct the the origin story uh, of why Canada was created. Um, and obviously move us towards a more post-nationalist uh, uh, frame of mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm I'm among the minority of um, Canadian history readers like yourself. In Victoria, your city council at that point in 2018 for sure, and I'm not sure what they look like today, but they did have a reputation for being uh, somewhat activist politicians uh, is that is that still the case today it's definitely still the case today unfortunately now it's not as bad probably the two most activist politicians the former mayor lisa helps and a city councillor by the name of ben is who also tried to defund remembrance day celebrations and uh take christmas tree uh, christmas lights down because he thought they were offensive um they're gone so uh that's a step in the right direction. The thing people have to understand about Victoria, I, I, it's definitely the most left-wing progressive council, I would say, in the country. But part of that is because Victoria is not a uh, it's not an amalgamated city like a, like Calgary is, for example. So uh, there's 13 different municipalities in Victoria, and when you say the city of Victoria, you're talking about 
um, a municipality. It's not even the largest one in Greater Victoria. It's got 70,000 people and really represents the downtown core uh, where, you know, the the most left of the left live, if that makes sense. And it uh, doesn't, doesn't represent the, um, uh, I mean, most people in Greater Victoria, as they call it, I couldn't stand the mayor and that decision and other decisions that they've made over the past uh, decade or so. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's interesting. I think there are no good arguments coming from, you know, the left wing on on tearing down statues or not putting up Christmas lights. But I will give you the, uh, you know, what might be the best libertarian argument, which would be that, you know, some of these things, you know, as far as the statue goes, the, you know, is is it appropriate for the state to you know, put up these statues in the first place. I mean, I, I, you know, I lean towards things being privately owned and those types of property rights, in which case that statue could easily be protected. But when it's at the mercy of uh, an elected government and especially an activist uh, city council, um, you're kind of at the mercy of what, uh, what they want to do, you know? I mean, in the reality that we're living in now, there's lots of public spaces, basically, where all the, wherever you would erect something that could be seen and walked up to by everybody would probably be in a public space. And I think it's important to, to uh, understand our past and where we came from and, and have, uh, you know, stars, you know, kind of like the North Star to, to guide our, our uh, uh, future paths and decision-making. Maybe more importantly, just to start conversations so people are aware of Canadian history. I mean, you just mentioned how we're both in the minority of people who who maybe are interested in and know much about Canadian history. You know, most people don't know anything. And I think statues can be kind of like, you know, guideposts about uh, where we came from, where we're going. And uh, you know, people stop at statues and take pictures with them and read the, read the plaques or whatever next to them. So uh, I actually think we need more of that in society. But I think at the very least, you know, tearing it down doesn't, doesn't help anyone. And from a taxpayer's perspective, you know, this is a statue that was donated, uh, so not paid for by taxpayers about 40 years ago by a nonprofit independent group, and then was torn down using, you know, I think about $20,000 of taxpayers' money. So that's, that's the, the <laughs> we're at net negative as, as, as we're paying to remove our own history. And, uh, so I think it's, uh, I think it's, um, concerning and this this was outside of the city hall and in uh, victoria where he also it's also part of local history because he was a member of parliament here which is a long story but it um yeah i don't like i don't like i think history is important and i think that usually societies end up making mistakes because it, very rarely do you see a society or a culture or civilization make a mistake that hasn't already been made before usually it's repeating the same mistakes so I think um, combating an ignorance of history is actually a, an important common good. But the the idea that it was donated by a nonprofit organization, now, I don't know if they still exist or not, but you would think there would be some sort of protection in place for the people that put up the money to 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 create the statue. So that really is too bad. You're also a big advocate of, of free speech. You know, have we made progress on the idea of free speech recently? You know, in this fight, or is it is it something we've been losing for the past decade? 
Uh, well, I, I would say it's it's um, it, we've been on a losing streak for the last last decade because the the people that believe in rolling back free speech, which I think is the most probably the most dangerous of 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 all the various policy objectives of of many of these these activists. Um, you know, over the past decades, they've they've taken control of a lot of our our institutions. Um, and I mean that in, in not not really in a conspiratorial sense. Just like I mean, look at who runs the universities. Look at who who runs these different uh, um, regulatory boards. Like what's happening with Jordan Peterson right now uh, for various professions. Look who's running uh, the media. So the I, I think free speech is 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 important because all other freedoms are derived from it. Whether it's freedom of religion or freedom of assembly or the freedom to to vote and exercise your democratic right you can't have any of them without freedom of speech so it by extension when you start eroding freedom of speech you erode all of those other rights as well as far as how it's been going i think for the first time we are rising to the occasion and pushing back and we're having a real debate and discussion about it i think the the current leader of the conservative party has a lot to do with that because he's speaking out about it whereas previous ones did not and uh, so now we're actually having these conversations and debates, but uh, it's still very worrisome when I see the, you know, the, the present government, you have Bill C-11, you've got, um, you know, they really believe in this, in this, you know, what people call closing the Overton window, limiting the amount of socially acceptable speech. And by the way, there are, there's different kinds of limits on free speech. There's the, the legalistic limits. The government is putting forward legislation to legally limit your your ability to speak. And then there's also uh, limits on free speech placed from kind of a socio-cultural perspective where, you know, you're going to be fired from, you know, you have this mob on Twitter that's harassing people who express any views outside of this increasingly narrow Overton window, and then they'll try to destroy your lives um, if you step outside the line, which in many cases, the consequences of which can be a lot more severe than than um, than any uh, legalistic ones. So I think both of those are important. Kind of the ethos of free speech versus the laws surrounding free speech, and uh, they're both important to to consider and protect and promote. And uh, hopefully, people are are uh, are starting to push back and, and recognize that. Being that you're in BC, one of the big things. Um that that I like to talk to guests about from BC is is ICBC. Uh ICBC from an outsider looking in looks like a disaster. Um and there are quite a few different organizations including the uh liberals in BC and the BC Libertarian Party, some other organizations and yourself that are talking about ending the monopoly on on auto insurance in BC. Um can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, ICBC has been a, it's the, it's the as you alluded to, there's the, the government-run monopoly on auto insurance. If you want to get your car insured, if you want to drive in, in British Columbia, you have to go through them. They have been a, a dumpster fire that's cost taxpayers quite a bit of money and, and ratepayers a lot of money uh, since the 70s or 80s, I think. And it's um, it got really bad there about about six or seven years ago. We we're paying the highest rates in the entire country by a significant margin, 
And I mean, good luck. <laughs> it's, it's not like you were getting some kind of added benefit or, or special customer service treatment for that. I've had my, my own share of run-ins with, with them, but the, um, so it's, it's, I mean, it's not really in, in many ways a complicated story. It was, it was, uh, government wanted to exercise control over a sector of the economy. So they, they nationalized the previous private and competitive, uh, insurance system. Now the, um, in Alberta, you have a, a, a for private competitive auto insurance system where you can go to a b- bunch of different companies and compare quotes and everything like that. Now, BC used to be the most expensive in the country. It's, it's since come down a lot in price, but that's not because they introduced competition or they hired some magic CEO to, to head up the, the government monopoly. It's because they changed the system to where you no longer have uh, basically the right to sue. So you can't, if you get in a car accident and, um, you know, you, you uh, break your arm or something like that. Um, you basically just get like kind of a lump sum payment and you, there's no longer, um, uh, pain and suffering and, and, and things like that, uh, which is, um, an interesting debate and conversation. I actually don't mind that element of the change, but if you're going to go down that route, you could do something like Quebec, uh, where you have that system, but you still have private companies competing. And it's also where you have the lowest auto insurance rates in the entire country. I remember, for example, when I moved, I lived in Montreal for a year. My rates from BC for the same car, same kind of coverage went from something around $1,400 a year down to $620 a year. So a significant savings um, that doesn't get talked about a ton uh, that obviously affects most families. I mean, a lot of families have two cars. So, you know, those savings stack on on top of each other. The ICBC and the and the government in BC denies this all the time, but there are a lot of people that claim the the BC is a crown corporation or whatever you want to call it. ICBC is a crown corporation it is basically broke. Um, now, is there any validity to that that you know of? Well, they basically had to be bailed out by taxpayers, so that so they were completely broke. I mean, they're not going to go broke in the sense that they're a monopoly, so they can just raise rates. Like they would have gone broke. Uh, a couple of years ago, and then they raised rates by like 30% on everybody. Well, you have to drive, you have to pay the rate. So um, I, they don't really have, uh, uh, you know, it's hard for a monopoly to go out of business uh, that's running an essential service. So I, I don't think if the problem is, is that um, they either end up getting bailed out by taxpayers. Uh, so, or you end up paying ridiculously high rates in the country, or in the case of what just happened recently, you get your benefits scaled back. So you're still paying pretty high rates and then you get your benefits scaled back. Basically what it is, is that whatever system of auto insurance you choose, when you have that government monopoly and you, and you remove the competitive private sector forces, you're going to end up paying more than you would have otherwise paid. You're going to get probably worse service and, um, and you're not going to have uh, the choice to choose the particular company uh, that you want. And uh, we've seen that play out over and over again. I mean, insurance is a, um, those people in Ontario and Alberta that they have private insurance that, that complain. And I don't think it's an industry that's, that's, uh, without need of regulation, but it's, you know, you just don't want the government running in anything. Like I just tell people, like, you know, a lot of these companies might have 10% profit margins or 15% profit margins or whatever. And, They'll, they'll say like, oh, why don't we just nationalize it? Why don't we get the government to do it instead of having for-profit operators? 
I say, have you seen the government do anything? Like, do you not think that a private company would be 10, at least 10% more efficient? Like, is, because that's, that's, that's your, basically, if you think the private sector would be 10% more efficient, it would be better to have the private sector doing it. Um, you know, if you think about kind of traditional, uh, profit margins. So, um, and then you compound that over time and it makes a huge difference. And obviously, uh, and obviously we see that. Well, yeah. That 10% number is, uh, I mean, you're being very generous with saying they're only 10% better. <laughs> well, exactly. All right. It's time for an update on the Capitalism and Morality Calgary Seminar. It is happening Saturday, May 20th, 2023 at the Danish Canadian Club in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Our speaker lineup includes Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, who is a friend of the Darcy Drill podcast and was here on episodes 17 and 33. Also, Dr. Per Bylan, Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University and Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute, who was a guest on episode 31. Capitalism and Morality is Canada's premier seminar for Austro-Libertarian theory and philosophy. Go to the link in the show notes page for www.capitalismandmorality.com where you can find the full lineup and buy tickets. The, the big reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about uh, Vancouver is dying. I mean, this, this was a really popular... Now, is, is it an episode that's part of your uh, Politics Explained series, or is it a standalone documentary? It is technically an episode, but I mean, every, every, um, every episode is its own standalone okay. thing. There's not like some kind of continuity or anything going throughout the season. So um, I think most people probably just know it on its own, but it is part of the, the Politics Explained umbrella. Uh, of which there's, you know, there's episodes on, on John A. McDonald and a, and a host of other things, but it was, it was the, uh, the, the first episode, kind of the premiere episode of, of season three, which we just uh, wrapped up last year. Okay. Okay. Well, now is it, is it the, is it the most popular one you've done so far? Yeah. From the long form stuff. I've had some short videos over the years that have really exploded. But as far as kind of long form journalism, this is also, by the way, the longest video I've ever done. So when I actually produced it, we released it. I was concerned of how, you know, I'm like, is anyone going to sit here and watch a 50 minute doc, you know, documentary on YouTube? And um, yeah, it, it exploded. It's, it's got about 2.4 million views on YouTube, uh, another 300 or so thousand on Facebook. Uh, and it's really... Um, shattered kind of all of my expectations going into it about how well that this would do and uh so it's great it, it it it's credited by a lot of people with swaying the municipal election came out about two weeks before uh the, the incumbent mayor who was responsible for a lot of these policies was about tied in the polls and then ended up losing by 20 points i'm not going to say he would have he wouldn't have lost anyways but we definitely contributed to that margin that's for sure and um it made a big impact i think and um, I think that's kind of undeniable. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely exceeded expectations. And it's, I would say, definitely the most impactful piece of work that uh, that I've produced. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to definitely congratulate you on the on the success of it. But but like you say, beyond that, I mean, the amount of the impact that it has 
on on people and and you know i i mean i think what you doing that has more potential to help the people that you're talking about in that film than than these policies that we're seeing come out of uh, victoria or or vancouver right um so first of all some of our listeners might not have seen the video so first tell them a bit about what's going on in vancouver right now that that inspired you to make this thing well, I think the first thing to point out is Victoria or uh, Vancouver is the epicenter and the best, worst example, if that makes sense, of what's happening in many cities across the country, especially British Columbia. Uh, I'm still spend most of my time here in, back and forth between Victoria and Vancouver. It's gotten so much worse in Victoria over the past 10 years because they've been copy and pasting these same policies. And then Vancouver, it's just reached a new a new these new heights i guess i should say new lows of 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 uh degeneracy open drug use uh violent crime and it was weird for me because from all of the politicians even though this was happening in front of everybody's eyes even though everyone gathered around the water coolers at work was openly talking about how bad the situation was getting our politicians were pretending as if you know everything was fine and to the extent there was a problem, it was because we hadn't hadn't gone far enough on these policies that they've been implementing over the past 20 years. And what was needed is that we need to double down more. And nobody was presenting the other side of the story. No one was saying, hold on, wait a second. This is an extension of the same policies you've been enacting for the past 20 years while crime has increased. Overdose deaths have, have skyrocketed from 150 a year in 2001 to over 2,000. Uh, in this most recent year, uh, you know, no one was talking about how just the, the open air drug use that didn't exist is now everywhere. That there's needles on parks, on sidewalks. No one was confronting. No one was asking the the questions, which is what you know journalism is supposed to be about. You know, kind of speaking truth to power and holding it accountable. So that's what inspired the video, and um, and then as we were making the video, what became quite evident. To me, and I've probably never been more surprised by so many things while while producing one of these documentaries, was how all these issues were connected. The the increases in crime every uh, day in Vancouver. There's four random violent stranger attacks. The the increases in um, illicit and open drug use uh, on the streets, and the massive increases in overdose deaths and health consequences. Um, and how these were basically all connected and, and and by the way also the increases of homelessness and how it's all basically one issue and uh that that comes back to this 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 drug problem that we have is specifically fentanyl crystal meth and and how it's being basically normalized and enabled by government policies um and while at the same time removing uh power uh, from police. So th th these were uh, issues that were all connected and trying to connect those dots together was basically the story of making the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, th this thing is spilled over into all kinds of smaller communities across BC. I mean, I, I spent some time in the Okanagan and I, I remember the last time I was through uh, Salmon Arm, BC, which is a small town 16,000 people or something and there's a what used to be a soccer field 
to a middle school, and the middle school's now been torn down, but the field is still there, and sure enough, there's um, a tent city kind of thing being built there, and people like burning garbage, and there's this black billowing smoke wafting over to a, a daycare, and and it it seems like um, there isn't a political will to deal with this stuff in a way, and it seems like it's it seems like it's almost political correctness or something that gets in the way, like because to do something is is uh, politically incorrect. Is that do you see that as a as as the case at all? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if political correctness is, is the right term for this particular issue, but there's certainly a lack of political courage. It confuses me because it's, it seems quite obvious to me that many, most British Columbians and a lot of Canadians have had enough with this kind of thing. I mean, it's reflected in the results of the Vancouver election, for example. But, um, you know, voters, especially voters who are, who are very busy, you know, need a clear alternative to understand because they basically, they've been told for the past 20 years that this is just kind of inevitable and, or it's, you know, it's just a mental health thing and we're, we're doing what we can and we got to give them more resources or more housing or, or more free drugs or a quote unquote safe supply, which you hear about all the time. Uh, and no one's really been standing up and giving that alternative. But I think um, politicians are starting to, you see it in Alberta, you see it federally, you see it here in British Columbia. Because to your point, I, you know, I got, I mean, I got a lot of responses from Vancouver. I mean, the video's got tens of thousands of comments on it, but um, the, the maybe some of the most common responses I got were from other people in BC, from places like Nanaimo, Campbell River, Salmon Arm, you know, Penticton, Prince George, uh, Maple Ridge, where you know, the people in Vancouver, it's it's worse than it's ever been, but they're also used to that downtown east side. Um, a lot of these other smaller place uh, communities did not have anything remotely like this. And it's exploded. Um, and it usually comes from copy and pasting the exact same policies that are happening in, in Vancouver to these smaller communities. And um, I think that it's, uh, it's obvious. I just, I, and when I went and make the video, I just... I don't know how you would look at the problem and say what we've been doing has been working when everything's been getting worse. So you you would think that you would try a radically different shift in policy, but of course politicians are not super inclined to admit what they've been doing for the past 20 years have been wrong. And there's also a lot of entrenched interests that are making lots of money uh, with the current status quo, and they don't want it to change either. So uh, that's another part of the problem. Right. Okay, so let's talk a bit. What are some of the exact policies that are are leading to this sort of cultural decay? I would say the biggest one. So I, I mean, a lot of these are are, are multifaceted and, and cultural at their core. I would say the the there was a series of there's been a series of policies implemented by the government over the past twenty years to normalize and effectively enable hard drug use as, as a as a lifestyle that has led to most of the problems that we have now uh, or, or led to a further exacerbation of the obviously you're not going to get rid of this problem entirely or it's just like any major problem in society the, the goal is for it not to spiral out of control where you're at a point now where i mean i don't know how many people 
if you want to bulk, 2,000 people are dying every year from opioid overdoses. Like how many, begs the question, how many people in BC are addicted to opioids? Like 50,000, 60, like it's just a significant number of people that have become addicted to these drugs. And um, so I, th I think it's important that the, first of all, that you don't do that. You don't try to normalize, enable, and perpetuate this behavior. And, and what the government has been doing is they've been treating it as a palliative issue. So they've been saying almost, you know, there's, there's, it's actually kind of sad and pathetic. They've been saying to a lot of these people, and I think part of this is ideological, that, you know, this is your, this is the best you can do. This is your lot in your life. We're going to try to ease your suffering by giving you some, what we view to be marginally safer drugs and a hole in the wall, uh, or we're going to buy this hotel using taxpayer money. And we're just going to warehouse you in here and uh, good luck. Like have a, have, have a, you know, good luck panhandling for the next 30 years or whatever. And a lot of the cases, you know, these are young, especially young men, also young women in their twenties, thirties. Otherwise they could be healthy, tax paying, productive members of society. And we've, and I think what the, um, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but the other thing that, that really, frustrates me from a from a conservative and libertarian perspective and and this this uh this i mean this is this is the left every time they're talking about a policy or formulating policy is is they really don't believe in individual agency and free will like like they believe that you know this is the reason why they're enacting these policies is they because believe this is society's fault this person's in the situation it's never it's never on them and and thus it's it's some kind of uh they're just doomed to their fate whereas if you i think have a different worldview as i'm sure we share where you believe in individual agency and free will and and the thing is is all the facts point to that because you know 2000 people died last year from from opioid overdoses in british columbia which is a, a shocking number when you when you you know these aren't people that were you know 85 and and died from some, you know, these people that could have lived for, for another 50 years in, in a lot of cases, um, that, uh, there's, there's also thousands of people who get clean every year and return to being taxpaying members of, of society, productive members of society, fathers, mothers, and, um, and they do get clean. So it's not like this should be so, so it's, I, I think what we need is we need a lot more treatment. Uh, we need focus to be on on getting people um, out of that situation and letting them know it's 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 not an acceptable it's not an acceptable outcome shouldn't be an acceptable outcome for them for communities for societies and for taxpayers that are picking up the bill for all of this. I don't think people would have much issue, you know, helping for their tax dollars to go to helping people get clean to to to, to treat the the issue the illness of addiction, but. Um, I think people have an increasing problem with paying billions and billions of dollars in, in, in taxes every year to fund this, this, this merry-go-round that never ends of emergency services, policing, uh, violent crime, and, and all of the degradation of, of, of neighborhoods um, that isn't fair to everybody else who's, who's going about their day-to-day their -day and trying to raise their family or bring their kids to a park that's now at needles in it or, or being harassed on the street or uh, assaulted on the street or, or all these different things. I mean, past couple of years in Vancouver, it's been crazy. You've had people, but there's one woman who was set on fire. You've had people like just these random violent attacks of 
of people, um, you know, tripping out on what, whatever their, their uh, drugs are taking. So I, I think, um, I might've went on a tangent there. I can't even remember your original question, but it's, uh, well, the, the, the question was about, uh, what, what policies are, are causing these problems. But I, I think you did touch on it because, well, and I'll, I'll say this too. I mean, us, us not including yourself, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on your political leanings, but uh, like myself and my audience, uh, very libertarian leaning. And I get messages from people saying where somebody who's promoting these left-wing policies in, in a place like Vancouver uh, is saying, well, you, you guys are the ones that came up with this idea about uh, ending the drug war and, and legalizing drugs. And and the reality of that is all we said was that putting people in prison isn't going to solve the problem. And and we definitely never said to subsidize the problem because, because we, you know, every libertarian's always been very clear that the more you subsidize something, the more of it you're going to get. And I think that's exactly what's happening with these policies in, uh, that are coming out of, uh, you know, the city of Vancouver and provincially out of Victoria and federally out of uh, Ottawa is that they are subsidizing the, that lifestyle. They're, they're, um, like you've, I've seen you talk about how they're now like just giving these people free drugs. Nobody has ever advocated just giving these people free drugs as something that would solve this problem. Yeah. I think, again, this goes back to the, um, free speech issue where, where, where there's a couple facets of this. There's, there's the, the legalistic response and policies and, and solutions. And then there's also the cultural ones. And I actually think the cultural ones have been almost more devastating. You, you have, it's very bizarre. Actually, you, you'll, you have the government taxpayers money running ads about, you know, why you shouldn't be smoking basically or drinking and driving, which is a, a very common one. Um, obviously trying to increase the societal stigma uh, and awareness around those particular issues for what they view as negative consequences across society. And then when it comes to hard drug use, which by far kills the most people and wreaks the most havoc and costs taxpayers the most money, they're running ads about, you know, if you're, if you're going to use, make sure you use with a friend or make sure to use safely or make sure to like, it's just, it's, it's, it's a crazy, and it's such a different set of messaging than when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago. Um, and you know, this is not, uh, I mean, these are, these are, I mean, you walk downtown Vancouver. I mean, these are, these are drugs that like turn people, you got a little mini zombie apocalypse. Uh, you know, you don't have to turn on you know, Netflix. You can just watch the walking dead on, on East Hastings street. Like it's, it's a, it's an absolutely crazy dystopian site to walk down there when you're surrounded by so much wealth and prosperity elsewhere in the, in the city, in the province. So I think this, this, again, this normalizing, and again, to your point about subsidizing, um, that's the, that's the, the legalistic element of it. But uh, what I was saying from a cultural perspective is, is you're by subsidizing, you're enabling and you're normalizing, you're making it easier. And almost every recovering addict I talked to, told me that if you know they might have got off the streets three years ago or in one case 18 months ago five years ago 10 years ago you know they said in a lot of cases if the programs were available for them uh 
that are available now with regards to the safe supply, quote unquote, safe supply, handing out drugs, uh, which aren't safe, by the way, you overdose on them. Um, or the, you know, the, the mass subsidization of, of basically this destructive behavior, uh, they'd either A, still be on the street or B, they'd be dead. So, um, it's, it's a very odd thing to be, um, I, I don't want to say encouraging, but certainly enabling and to your point, subsidizing. From a policy perspective, you have to respect the taxpayers. Like you have, you have to respect somebody who has an actual claim to the property that these things are happening on. Now I get it's city property or state property or whoever you want to refer to it. Uh, a lot of times, not always. I mean, if they're camped out on a sidewalk in front of a privately owned building, you know, the policy should be directed towards the taxpayer who is directly impacted by that sort of stuff outside of their building. And, and I, I, because they would have an actual claim to the property where homeless people and, and drug addicts just, just wouldn't given that they're not you know, involved, like you say, in the, in the tax structure and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it's weird that the government, there's been a weird change that I, I don't know if it's, it's not very common, I think, in the history of democratic countries, but, you know, it's clear that, I mean, usually if you were the productive taxpaying members of, of society who were essentially funding government services and, and creating employment and that kind of thing, you would, hope and and maybe expect that government would be looking out for your interests um but it's basically the exact opposite that that happens it seems that if you're kind of a taxpaying law-abiding citizen uh your interests are at the, been at the back of the line uh if you're not some kind of if you if you're not able to hold some kind of victim uh victimhood uh you know sign around your neck then you're you're basically at the back of the line for for government attention and I think that's really the opposite of how it should be, and um, is again a root of a lot of these a lot of these problems. But it's and, and you know what? It also comes down to this issue with with compassion as opposed to, to you know you know tough tough love. I think is 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 and you mentioned the war on drugs, which I think you know you still see these activists keep trying to bring up the war on drugs, and it's kind of like you. I don't know about the rest of the country, but in Vancouver, there hasn't been a war on drugs in 20 years. So I don't like you, you can <laughs> like it's uh, there ain't no war on drugs happening right now in, in uh, downtown Vancouver. Um, so uh, the drugs have clearly won. Well, I, my, my only point was that, uh, you know, from a policy perspective, I mean, property owners and taxpayers are, are, are not being respected. Uh, and, you know, basically there are these invasions of, of, of property rights by you know, people who are, or who, and I, I want to be clear too, I understand these people have mental health issues and drug addictions where they are not acting in, in their right their right mind. But when you have like these invasions of property rights, these violent attacks out of nowhere, if you're a victim of a violent attack or some sort of property invasion, then you're made to pay taxes to subsidize that behavior, to enable that behavior, you're really being, you're being hit twice. Yes. And I also think, um, you know, I look at it this way, like in any other aspect of the law or society, you know, if you're, if you're running around committing crimes, 
uh, because you have schizophrenia or you're, you're, you're out of control, uh, bipolar disorder or whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, we, we want to help you. Um, but the solution isn't just to leave them on the street and say it's totally socially acceptable for you to remain untreated and just to continue committing, uh, these crimes or, or societal disturbances. Like that's obviously that's not acceptable and it's not how we, but you know, you, you put people into, to hospitals to get them the, the help they need. Um, I mean, in their case, they might need to be on a certain drug as opposed to, to off them, like what's, what's happening in most of downtown Vancouver. But it's, it's, um, it's, it's crazy how we think that this is some kind of acceptable state of affairs and the solution which, by the way, the problem that was created in, in no small part to the overprescription of opioids, we're going to now solve it by handing out more opioids for free, paid for by taxpayers, out of vending machines, which is what they're doing now, uh, in perpetuity. I mean, how is that a solution? That's not a, that's not a solution. We're just going to have an ever-increasing percentage of the population that's addicted to these to these. Um, these zombie-inducing drugs, and uh, we're just going to keep buying hotels using taxpayer money and then warehousing them, and then they're going to get set on fire, and then the fire department has to go, and then the paramedics are... The amount of healthcare resources that are used up on this 1% of the population and paramedic resources and policing resources, which we haven't even got into, and it's... it's um, No, it's, 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 it's clearly not sustainable. And I remember the point I was going to make, which is simply that you, you can also like so many of our government problems, you can actually relate these to your daily life where, you know, we usually have all known someone or some people that have issues with either addiction or we'll just say um, a reoccurring behavior that has negative outcomes for themselves and people around them and continuing to enable and normalize that behavior is not helping them. Like you're not helping yourself. You're not, you're not helping anybody. Like, uh, you know, some people misread that as compassion. You know, they just want, just give it to them. Like they'll feel so much, well, you're not helping them. You know, like you're, you're just perpetuating a destructive, a destructive set of behaviors that is, that has potentially deadly consequences for, for obviously themselves. And, you know, all these people have families and then, there's the community at large, and then there's taxpayers that are footing the bill for everything. So I think we've found the worst of all possible. Uh, I think if you look around the world, there's a variety of of, of ways to handle the, this drug issue. And I think Vancouver has found the worst possible way, and is and that's kind of reflected in the worst set of outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to, uh, again, congratulate you on the success of, of this, and, and not only because of the however many millions of views it's got, because I do think it is uh, something that has power to to make a difference. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that a guy like yourself is out there working on this stuff. So thanks a lot for coming on, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. That was Aaron Gunn. You can find him at aarongunn.ca. The Darcy Drill Podcast is a production of capitalismandmorality.com If you like the Darcy Drill Podcast, subscribe on Substack. Substack.